This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to a very festive episode 724 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head number one, and my name is Matt Bond. And I'm the internet's Joe Patrick, your head number two. It's time for another new comic book review show where we review a pile of new funny books from the last two new comic book Wednesdays. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read new comic picks for next week. Finally, you're going to get a sampling of our Patreon Extra. And this week, we are taking on a very hard-hitting subject that may not be appropriate for all audiences. We'll be talking about Santa appearances in comic books. It gets gnarly. I'm just going to warn you right now. Okay? I mean, it, some of them are not uh, PG. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll give you that much. <laughs> so put on your Santa hats and have a good time. But please, to avoid any further accidents, keep your arms and legs inside the sleigh at all times. You will not be told again because it's review time in the ziggurat. On our new comic review show, we review six comics from last week. And we flash forward and review six from this week. And then we place the creators on our naughty or nice list with our three-point rating scale of buy it, skim it, or leave it, which usually gets us removed from all our favorite creators' Christmas card list almost every year. You would think that there would be a, uh, it would only be a binary choice, or it would be a naughty, a blank, or a nice list. Like naughty, nice, or nah, nah, eh, nah, kind of. Nah. That's, if, if we were smart, it would, sure. <laughs> I mean, if it's a three-point rank scale. All right. We've got quite the new comics pile here featuring Spotty and Luke Cage neck deep in a gang war, the untold tale of Nightcrawler's two mommies. Batman getting trained by Santa and so much more, but it all starts with Beast Boy going full interstellar kaiju. New comics for the week of Wednesday, 11-29. We begin with DC's latest crossover. The fans cried out for Giant Starfish versus Giant Starfish action, and the good people at DC have answered with Titans Beast World number one. It's from DC. It's 48 pages. It's $5.99 with cover and art by Ivan Rice, written by Tom Taylor with inks by Danny Meeky, colors by Brian Anderson, and letters by Wes Abbott. Here's your solicit. The biggest threat to the DC Universe is Beast Boy! Can the Titans save the world and their teammates? Superstars Tom Taylor and Ivan Rice team up for an unprecedented Titans crossover! That's a lot of capitalized That's words. a lot of wow. capitalized words. Clawing its way out of the pages of Titans. Get it? Comes an unprecedented threat to the DC universe. Get ready. There's a lot of beast stuff going on. I mean, on look, Starro doesn't have claws, but whatever. I know. Superman, Wonder Woman, Starfire, all are powerless to stop the Necrostar from ending all life on Earth. The only hero who can save the world is... Dot, dot, dot. Beast Boy. With Nightwing, Raven, Cyborg, and the Titans beside him, can Garfield Logan rise to battle an ancient evil? Question mark? What will Amanda Waller do to take advantage of the situation as millions of people are changed into rampaging creatures? Can humanity survive all powerful heroes and villains transformed into rampaging creatures? I'm kidding. They said into ferocious beasts. Friends will fall. 
Heroes will rise, and nothing will ever be the same. Earth is about to become... Dot, dot, dot. Beast World! DC proudly presents the Titans' first crossover as the world's premier superhero team with universe-shattering repercussions brought to you by the all-star creative team of Tom Taylor. Yeah, okay, got it. Thanks. If you haven't heard us mention it, you have not been listening, but I'll say it again. Tom Taylor has been killing it on Nightwing, and now he's doing the same with the Titans. While the Justice League is out of commission, the Titans are DC's premier superhero team, and now Taylor is getting his first huge DC crossover event with Beast World. Ivan Rice has been one of the most talented artists in the DC stable, no question, for a long time, and he is masterful here using giant widescreen panels to depict two of the arguably largest characters we've ever seen battle in space in the DCU, right? I mean, yeah. I can't think of anybody bigger than this. Like, these two characters are massive. Physically largest. Right. I I mean, I guess so, yeah. He's also got a huge cast of heroes and villains that pop up. They all look amazing. The script does not waste any time getting right into the action. It sets up a blockbuster crossover event that still has some heart, even a little humor, and it does the thing. The one thing you got to do in these big first issue crossovers is a huge last page. This crossover nails it. (laughs) I mean, like, look, it's ham-fisted. It's silly. You know what you're getting into, but Tom Taylor's doing a great job here. I'm giving this a buy it. Uh, Yeah, man, it's it's good. It's it's kind of irresistible. You know, it's not. It's not. um, It's like a good wrestling match where you see him working. You know where this is going. They're, they have to establish some rules. The Necrostar is here. It can kill everybody. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, I got it. Sure. <laughs> it's not like, you know, full of gut-wrenching metaphor and emotional re- no. resonance. It's just like, no, Beast Boy turns into a giant starfish to fight an even bigger giant starfish and accidentally turns everybody on Earth into a an animal whoops a, a, a were creature yeah. you know or most of the characters on earth that's fun it's just big dumb fun r- relatively low stakes because you know that they're not going to leave black adam a lion man forever you right. know that kind of thing question what happens to gorilla grod well that's why not everybody's transforming i was gonna say does he turn into a dude <laughs> <laughs> like, like, uh, maybe he turns into a, a different kind of beast maybe he turns into cheetah? you what know happens, a giraffe gorilla what happens to the cheetah i like to think that they're like also like boom i'm normal and they're like whoa, <laughs> whoa maybe what happened? maybe we'll get that maybe we'll get that yeah uh, I, I mean the implications of what happens to the animal characters that get uh, that may or may not get transformed was not explored in this. I need to know what happens when this thing crawls into detective chimp's mouth, you know, like (laughs) what's going on anyway. uh, It's fun. It's big. It's dumb. It's fun. The art is gorgeous. Ivan Rice. Wow. It's a bite. Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. It's a bite. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Let's hop in the DC Wayback Machine for Alan Scott, The Green Lantern number two. This is also from DC Comics. It's written by Tim Sheridan with art by uh, Sean Tormey. I'm going to go with Sean. Yeah. 
I, I'm fine with that. Sounds about right, Sean. Yeah, right? or or it's that or Cyan. I don't know, Cyan. I, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. Or Chan. Uh, colors are by Matt Herms. Letters are by Clayton Cowles. Cover is by David Talaski. It's 32 pages for 3.99. Here's your solicit. Allen's search for the killer framing him continues, but why are the murder victims people from Allen's past, and how does this connect to his brief stint in Arkham Asylum? Short and sweet. Now, we missed our chance to talk about the first issue of this series when it came out, but I really wanted to talk about how impressed I've been at this retelling of Alan Scott's origin told through the lens of his relatively newly established past as a closeted gay man. Tim Sheridan's story has a whole lot of moving parts, and it can be a bit of a struggle to keep everything straight. No pun intended, I swear. But his take on the original Green Lantern is deeply personal and very compelling. Sean Tormey's art is exceptional, delivering solid superhero thrills and strong characterization during the scenes that are mostly dialogue. When DC decided to introduce a gay version of Alan Scott during the New 52, I was there was I was upset. I was just like, you can't do that. Yeah, Alan right. Scott. Matt was burning all of his. Think about all, all the, the love all scenes his, uh, he's been in. Yeah. <laughs> It's a joke. It's a joke, people. Obviously, it's a joke. But there was no way that they wouldn't follow suit with that when the original returned to continuity. So far, Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, is doing a great job reconciling both the known and the unknown aspects of the character's history. I'm giving this a huge buy it. I I think it's great so far. And the art is beautiful. Yeah, Tim Sheridan strikes me as like a character... When he popped up, it was during that future, that wasn't future state. Was it future state where he did the Titans thing with like the red X and all that. And like, it was like five years in the future and Shazam went bad. Um, I mean, maybe I don't, I don't know. I didn't really read that. Stuff. I can't, I think uh, it, I didn't read, I didn't read the Titans one. I think it was. And he had a lot of big ideas. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Teen Titans, future state. Okay. Uh, he also wrote future state Shazam. He wrote yeah. uh, a lot of future. State he was books. doing all the Titans related stuff at the moment. And Teen was, Titans Academy. He yeah, wrote. it was really good, but it just got kind of like elbowed into this, you know, event and then promptly forgotten afterwards. And I thought like he had a lot of good ideas that he could have done more with. I like him as a writer a lot. I think this is an excellent chance for him to show off how good he is with a character like Alan Scott, where he can basically go back and recreate his origins and like, you know, his background in the shadow of the fact that he is a closeted gay man, because it's not going to change anything from like what we already know about the character. Like we're getting the real story now. No, because the, the stuff's going to play out as it did in, in original yeah. continuity. He's going to get married. He's going to have kids. Because right. that's what gay dudes did. We're just seeing the yeah. real story. And, and right. he does a really good job of Alan Scott setting it up as like, look, I led a whole different life where I was a different person. And I'm not talking about a superhero. It's like, I'm talking about me, Alan Scott, which is yes, super clever. I think Sheridan's great. This is a huge buy uh, I think, though, if you don't realize who the um, Red Lantern is from the final, <laughs> by the end of the very first issue, you're not paying any attention. Next up, we talk about a Spider-Man comic book that has a very serious theme. And what they're talking about is gangbang. 
for those of you who don't know what that is, that's when a group of people get together and all have sex. That is not what we are discussing. That is not that's that is not the subject of this comic book, Matt. We discussed this. I apologize, and I may have missed some of this. Perhaps you can correct me a little on my review. Don't Google that word if you don't <laughs> know what you're gonna get. This is Amazing Spider-Man Gang War First Strike Number One. It's from, and in fact, I guess the only person that gets gang banged here is the reader, but. Th- this is from Marvel. It's 36 pages and it's $5.99. It's written by Zeb Wells and Cody Ziegler. I'm just saying there's a lot of one shots for this. All right. So it could feel like maybe Marvel is lining up and just, you know, <laughs> just your cover you. is by John Romita Jr. With art by Joey Vasquez. And now here's what I don't understand. It says art by Joey Vasquez with Julian Shaw. What does that mean? Maybe he did a page or two or helped with some okay, names. There, there was no credits for like, he was on yeah. this part or whatever. Colors by Brian Valenza and letters from VCs, Joe Caramanga. Here's your solicit. Prelude to gang war. The super crime landscape of New York has been on edge. This issue, they jump over that edge. What incites the war? Who hired Shotgun and took out Tombstone? What, if anything, can Spider-Man do about it? Everything you need to know before Gang War officially kicks off next month is here. Wait a minute. Gang War hasn't officially started yet? That's what I don't understand. I have a feeling this solicit was written at a time where they didn't realize that those several of the one-shots were going to come out the same week. So <laughs> I'm guessing it's just a scheduling thing. The prelude to the latest Spidey event is here. I'll give this creative team credit. There are some very big events that kick off the gang war. So this isn't just another chance for Marvel to take $6 from Spidey fans. I said, so this isn't just another chance for Marvel to gangbang Spidey fans. I admit I fell off Wells' amazing Spidey. So there were some fairly shocking status quo changes for characters, but I was able to pick up what was going on. While I admit I am a fan of any superhero gang war and the obligatory sitting around the table scene, making threats toward each other. But there was something about the art that kind of played mm. down the seriousness of the story here. It's, yeah, it's, it's not bad it's art at all. Right. It just comes off as comically cartoony during what's supposed to be some very violent scenes meant to really push the stakes of the story. While the big reveal of the gang war mastermind was impossibly easy to see coming, this is a pretty solid setup for the story. And it looks like if nothing else, Wells and Ziggler are finally going to get rid of the stupid ex-Mayor Wilson Fix anti-superhero law in New York City. An artist with a little more edge may have been able to sell this issue better, though. And I, I don't need any more White Rabbit. I don't care about that character. I am giving this a skim it. I agree with everything you said. I, I, I think that the art kind of undercuts yeah. the tone. Not that the art is bad. No. The art is fine. It's fine. It's just, it's not the right style of art for a story like this, right. I like, don't think. If you had like a Paul Azaketa do this issue. Sure. I'd be like, or, you know. Right on. You know, you know? Any kind of like grittier artist. Sure. You know, like a. They got Sean Phillips. Like a, like a, they threw some money at Sean Phillips and brought him in and be like, yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> Alex Maleev, Mike yeah. Perkins, like that sort of thing, right? But yeah, the, Joey Vasquez's art is just very like angular and cart- like almost kind of like Ryan Otley invincible kind of sort angular. Sort of, yeah, cartooning. like animated cartoonish. The plot is fine. It's fine. 
We're going to talk about another gang war comic here in a second that uh, was absolutely not fine. But I mean, this is the main event we're dealing with. The the main event is happening in Amazing Spider-Man. So, you know, I'm into it enough to keep following it in Amazing Spider-Man. I probably won't read all the tie-ins. I, I So agree. I'm giving this a skim it as well. It, it seems like, if nothing else, Spider-Man's done being a selfish jerk. And good. Gangs. Police say the gangs are growing, and they are engaging in ever more serious crimes. Let's just keep the war going. We're going to roll right into Luke Cage, Gang War number one from Marvel. It's written by Rodney Barnes with art by Ramon Box, colors by Andrew Dalhouse, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, cover by Kanan White. It's 40 pages for $4.99, and here is your solicit. Gang War! First strike! In the wake of the Anti-Vigilante Act, Luke has been trying to save the city from behind a desk, but a meeting with old friend Danny Rand reminds him of the good old days when problems could be punched in order to solve them. As New York descends into a gang war, Luke must use every power he has to protect the innocent and save the city. Does it remind him of the time that Danny Rand still had powers too? And we actually like that character. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm so out of date when it comes to my Iron Fist. I think the sword master is that, still technically your Iron Fist. And yeah. And you know, I, like no shade. I don't I, care. I, just don't, I, don't care. I haven't read all the, I'm not up to date on all my Iron Fisting. So sure. gross. First talking oh, about gang boy. banging. We now we're talking gang. about Iron Fisting. God, what is wrong with you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I want to specifically apologize to Hugo Tverdick and Brett Merriman's children. Rodney Barnes is an award-winning screenwriter, but with the possible exception of Philadelphia at Image. Which is great. His, his comic work has been pretty forgettable, with the exception of Philadelphia. Yes. Well, I won't forget Luke Cage gang war anytime soon, and I don't mean that in a good way. Barnes spends most of the issue showing how much of a hassle Luke's new gig as the mayor of New York City is, especially when all he really wants to do is wade into the action and crack bad guy heads. The rest of the issue is devoted to performing the most ludicrous plot acrobatics to show how the previous mayor's anti-vigilante act is hindering superheroes. Yeah. A beat cop actually draws down on Luke in the middle of a firefight with some bank robbers and Luke buckles like a belt. It's, it's ridiculous. That isn't even to mention the incredibly forced dialogue that at times feels at odds with everything I know about the character. I don't want to make any political statements on this podcast, but Luke Cage says some stuff in this comic book that I will, I like was like, seriously doubted I was reading about the well, same guy. There, and there was like some ridiculous stuff too. Like, look, you are against this stupid law and I get it. You should be, but you don't host a press conference where the press is like, really, Mr. Mayor, you think the NYPD can stand up to super powered bad guys? And he's like, I think the NYPD can stand tall against anything. I'm like, okay. Yep. Well, okay. Matt, Mr. Matt Mayor. Went ahead and, Matt went ahead and made the political statement. Without. What if the hobgoblin shows up? You know, like yeah, the, uh, the uh, NYPDs be like, "You're under arrest, Mister Hobgoblin." Yeah. <laughs> like what? <laughs> it's not even. It's not even that. I I'm talking about that second, ridiculous aspect of yeah, it. You know, but there's there's there is not a 
there is no chance that the Luke Cage that I've been reading about my entire life stands up in front of people and says, I wholeheartedly support the police force. Well, like there's no way. Joe, he is the mayor. He has to hold. I get it. I get that he's the mayor, but still. So I will buy that. He's the mayor. Uh, Then he's a He also doesn't hate cops. He hates bad cops. I know that he doesn't hate cops, Matt, but he will, but he'll also get in front of people and admit that there are flaws in the system. Not like, toe the blue line as yeah. it were my problem was like yeah cops go arrest dr octopus uh-huh. sure no that's, that'll that turn out is, well that is, also, <laughs> that is also ridiculous the art by ramon box is mostly decent until he unveils the most ridiculous Ugh. leather daddy bondage costume that luke decides that he needs in order to hide his illegal heroics terrible it it is so laughably bad that it Took away any goodwill I had towards the art in the rest of the comic. Uh, absolutely. The only thing Luke Cage Gang War number one succeeds at is convincing readers that making Luke Cage the mayor of New York was a really bad idea in hindsight. I'm giving this a leave it. I'm I'm, I'm done with the whole Luke as mayor thing. It's not working. I'm done me. with it too. And it, it's silly. It, it doesn't make sense. It's out of the character's scope. Like it was clever for a minute. It, but yeah, it's not working. So the costume thing, we all love a variant costume for a a superhero. It's a chance to do something that is iconic. Like, look, as much as I don't care for it, I cannot say that the Daredevil armor is not an iconic thing. They made toys about it. We just had a really shitty comic book, you know, about it that came out a couple weeks ago again. But like, you've got a chance to do something fun with Luke Cage. Put him in like a, a badass superhero costume just for one issue in disguise. This is what you came up with. All right. I got a better idea. Don't do it. Just put him in a hoodie and send him to go do this thing. You know, sure, like, right. That would have been, that would have been better. Yeah. It, it, none of this was, was good. I was going to give it a skim it. I think you convinced me it, this is a leave it. And no, it's bad. And if all the one shots are like this, I don't feel real good about where gang war is going. Honestly. Well, the thing is, is that they're not all, they're not one shots. Like this is a mini series. Oh, that's right. They're not even one shots or mini series, which they're asking uh, you to several, buy. There might be some of those. Some of them might be one shots, but this is a mini. The Daredevil Ugh. one's a mini. So they're asking like, you to I buy a lot of garbage. There you are. Really just. Come on, Marvel. Gang banging and iron fist and readers <laughs> left and right. <laughs> That's the last time we're going to make that joke this episode, I swear. Well. Bad news, Joe. This next one's pretty erotic, too. This is Crave, number one, from Image Comics. It is 32 pages for $3.99. It's written and drawn by Maria Lovett. Here is your solicit. Miniseries premiere! Thanks, Image. Thanks, Image. (laughs) Great job. You were right there with me. That was really Sorry, I was too busy recovering from that last um, revelation. (laughs) Yeah, I... Crave, a mysterious app that promises to make your desires come true, spreads among the students of an elite university who use it as a hookup app. David, a top student, engages in a game of seduction with the unattainable Alexandra, but as requests of the app escalate and wreak havoc on campus, David and his friends' only chance to stop this spiral is to find out what really lies behind Crave. There have been plenty of comics about the dangers of social media gone wrong, but Lovett blends sort of a monkey's paw aspect into her story of a dating app that seems to know more about its users than should be possible. 
she does a good job introducing the students into a situation that's already been unfolding while the main character is just sort of discovering what this app can do. Love its digital art looks raw and a little more focused than the last time I saw her work in the pages of Thessaly, the one shot for DC Sandman U. I hammered that one pretty hard, I admit. Her work frames key character scenes to keep the story moving really well. She is still signing almost every other panel once again. And I got to say, it takes me right out of the story. I just don't get it. It's like she's afraid someone's going to steal it or something. I don't understand. Crave number one is an erotic mystery. It looks to be off to a good start. Building a creepy story while still making some relevant criticisms of modern social media. Love it, I think is probably the kind of creator that's just better telling her own stories in her own sandbox. I got to say, I enjoy this a lot more than her other work. I'm giving this a buy it. I think it's a good setup. I thought it was okay. I, I think where it comes down is that I'm just not a huge fan of, of her work in general. I, I think that she's definitely got talent, but I don't really have much interest in, you know, this demonic, erotic sex app or you know it's going to be supernatural it has to be maybe yeah like i like i don't know what else it could possibly be because you're prude are you too prude for this comic book yeah maybe maybe that's it maybe maybe that is it you saw naughty bits no i just (laughs) i I just i I don't really i don't get it mirka andolfo is the same like i'm i don't get into mirka andolfo's uh stuff either uh, but that might be more because yeah, I got different. Know, I've got different problems out there drawing like sexy pig ladies and stuff. I don't. Even, that's Anything. not even it. Like, look, you can draw a sexy pig lady in a good story. I just think there's different storytelling issues there. Yeah, I, it's just I. I don't really need that kind of like confluence of of, of genres. I don't know. Uh, maybe I am a jerk. Maybe I am a prudish jerk. Prude, I don't know. No, prude dude. Uh, but prude dude. Is what I, I, like I do think that this story is a little bit more, more focused than some of her past works. Uh, and there are some things that she does that I really did like. Uh, for example, uh, there's a a lecture hall scene where the students are gathered for a class and they're talking about social media. And everybody in the classroom, which is one of those big like lecture halls, that isn't a, a named main character, has no face. Yeah, it's cool. It, 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 and you know that that's on purpose yeah. because they are talking about the anonymity of social media and how you don't really know people and all this stuff. And they also do a thing where it like pants to the teacher and the teacher is having a conversation and all the kids have no face because they are paying no attention whatsoever. They're either messing around on the app or the two kids that are the main characters are having their own conversation. It's clever. I I mean, yeah, it's neat. It's neat. Uh, I'm going to give this a skim it. It, It's, I, I, I can recognize her talent. It's just not really my cup of tea. Boy, I really wish that this uh, next comic didn't lend itself to a very obvious sophomoric sex joke, but I'm going to try to resist for everyone's benefit. It's X-Men Blue Origins number one. This is our most erotic show yet, Joe. I ain't dovetailing from Crave number one into this very thoughtful discussion. We are on an erotic journey through comic books right now. This one's from Marvel Comics. It's written by Cy Spurrier with art by Wilton Santos with Oren Jr. Inks and Marcus Toe. There's some flashback stuff going on, so you can tell that one artist draws that and one artist draws the present day. 
Colors are by CC De La Cruz. Letters are by VCs Joe Caramagna. There is a lot of VC work in this episode. Good on you guys. Well, they're all only when they're in Marvel, though. We decided that. That's their. No, it's true, but I mean, you know, not every Marvel book is lettered by VC. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. This cover, uh, the cover for this issue is by Francis Manipal. It's 40 pages for $5.99, and here's your solicit. And I'm going to tell you that this solicit is kind of at odds with the tone of the comic. And now that I've read the comic, the definitive Nightcrawler origin story. This is the one you can't miss, true believer. You think you know how the beloved Blue Devil came into this troubled world? You think you know the tale of his mendacious mama mystique? Whoa. You don't. I know. Mother and son reunite in a mold-shattering tale that exposes secrets held for decades and redefines both characters forever. A collector's item in the making! Doesn't mendacious mean like there's a bunch of fluid around your brain or something like that? <laughs> I don't think so. No, it means not telling the truth. That was a joke. So. Okay. <laughs> no. With her mind broken from resisting Chuck Xavier's mental command to leave the planet, Mystique has found her way to her son, Nightcrawler. What follows is a lengthy rewriting of Kurt Wagner's origin narrated by one of the ghostly, possibly imaginary Bamps that have been following him around in the pages of Uncanny Nightcrawler or Uncanny Spider-Man, right? Uncanny yeah. Spider-Man. When all is said and done, your boy Joe Pat's called it. Nightcrawler is the biological son of Destiny, his mother, and Mystique, who has such a strong command of her own genetic structure that she, she can was make able semen. To Just say it, Joe. She can make semen. <laughs> she can pass on genetic material. That's how babies get made, Joe. <laughs> I, I mean, I get it. They make a baby, Matt. Uh, she has such a strong command of her own genetic structure that she was able to father a child despite being born female. Spurrier weaves a tale of lies and betrayal and love that incorporates what we thought we knew about Kurt's history, even giving that dumbass Azazel a credit for a <laughs> genetic alley-oop. I promise it makes a whole lot more sense than it sounds like it does, and it undoes a major disservice that has been perpetrated against two of Marvel's most popular mutants. The art by Wilton Santos and Marcus Toe is excellent as well, keeping things visually exciting despite the issue being light on action. Look, man, it's a big retcon. And yeah, if you're a hardcore continuity nut, you might need to do some mental gymnastics here and there to make it fit. But X-Men Blue Origins is the solution to a problem that fans have been asking for for two decades. And the fact that Marvel let Cy Spurrier deliver it with such care and thoughtfulness it's just icing on the cake. I'm giving this a huge buy it. Like, I could not believe how well done this was. How how well Cy Spurrier thread that needle. I feel like it's done so well that it's not a huge retcon. It's a gentle reset that makes more sense. Well, let's not kid ourselves. There's some leaps in comic book logic we have to make here. Like, I'm not sure why Azazel and Chuck went along with all this. Like, did, did Charles wipe his mind too? I don't know. Not important. And, and right, it's and like does plugging, it really well. It's like plugging in uh, pieces to the puzzle that we didn't realize were missing. Exactly, a huge retcon would be like, "Yeah, Mystique's not even his mom." Nope, it was. Yeah, right. You know, exactly. It was so and so, or whatever. Yeah, it was someone completely different. And Mystique, like, 
found dead mom and put the baby in her belly and then gave birth. Like, gross. What? No. That's a huge gross retcon. Don't do that. Right. Right. (laughs) No, this was handled really well. Way better than, honestly, I thought it was going to be handled. And I'm not saying I don't trust Cy Spurrier. He's a good writer. I am about, I'm going to say 70-30 with Cy Spurrier. And it's not because, like, the 30% is bad. He can just sort of get so far out there Sometimes, yeah. and I'm like, Sai, just pull it back a little bit. He never got there with this. Did a good job. Delivered it well. Art is fantastic, by the way. This is a solid buy it. I'm glad Nightcrawler is not the son of a stupid demon. Thank you. Okay? <laughs> Thank like, you. What? A, how badly can you miss the point about a character than to make his dad the devil? Good I just... Lucifer, and I have heard your request, and it shall be granted. Now that we're out of the erotic portion of the show, we venture into super rippling tough guy nipples with Bloodrick number one from Image Comics, 32 pages, $3.99 by Andrew Cranky. Here is your solicit. Miniseries premiere! Thanks, Image. Bloodrick is angry, confused, and starving. Unable to achieve success in his usual hunting grounds, he stomps his way into unfamiliar woods in an attempt to feed his stomach and heal his ego. What he finds will lead him on a journey of madness, violence, fire, and blood! A lot of the creator-owned comics that I read these days starts with a prose introduction about how the creator got to finally print their story. And I always read them, and I appreciate the struggle, but Cranky decides to draw his opening instead. And the choice goes a long way in setting up the story of his ridiculously named barbarian Blood Rick. There's just like a, a scene where he talks to me, he's like, 10 years ago, I drew this sketch. It was barbarian. I thought it was pretty cool. And he draws it, and it's him narrating it, drawing, looking at himself, drawing the picture. And he's looking at the picture, and his character goes, cool. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, this guy's just a nerd. This guy is just a nerd that loves his shit. The story is a slow burn that leans into the Doom Metal logo on the cover. We don't learn much of anything about the main character other than he's hungry, he's massive, and he's rarely seen challenge in his world. Cranky's art is just as brutal as his story with hard lines and thick, detailed crosshatch work. In his foreword, he thanks artists like Ed Piscor, Jim Rugg, and Johnny Christmas, and you can see all of their influences here. While the story moves at an almost glacial pace, I found myself completely immersed in the art and the incredibly heavy metal aspect of this survival story of one hungry barbarian. This is one that you pull out your hardest, slowest doom metal record, put it on, get high, and read Blood Rick. This is a buy it. I thought it was great fun, and I texted Matt last night. I read it. I read it... um, I read it a couple nights ago. Last night, Matt and I were talking. I texted him. I was like, Blood Rick number one was great. And he's like, I immediately texted Jared and told him yeah, to go buy I was it. like, dude, <laughs> like this goddamn book. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought it was pretty funny how they had to put, you know, there's the logo, which is a, a very tame version of a blood metal 
kind of logo. Nope, there's no such thing as blood metal, Joe. Or death metal, whatever. <laughs> Let's call it death metal. Oh, come on. There's no such thing as blood metal? No. I doubt it. No, <laughs> there isn't. Uh, but then they still felt the need to put in parentheses in normal type, blood rick. That's well... <laughs> You know, I mean, come on. It's like you got to sell the book. I graphic guess. I designers got a graphic design. I get it. But I, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, this is fantastic. Uh, the art really sells it. The, there is a story, you know, it, but the story is almost irrelevant. And I yeah. don't mean that to do. I don't, I don't mean that in like a dismissive way. I just think that the art is what draws you in and it really wouldn't matter what the story was about. It's barely important. Yeah. It's barely important to what they're trying to do, which is just like, yeah, this is a story about the toughest dude ever. (laughs) Here we go. Loved it. Yep. It's a buy it for me as well. I got plenty of tough guy barbarians of my own to talk about, Matt. That's why next up we're discussing Batman Santa Claus, Holen, Silent Night, number one from DC Comics. It's written by Jeff Parker with art by Michelle Bandini, colors by Alex Sinclair, letters by Pat Rousseau, with a cover by Dan Mora. It's 32 pages for $3.99. And here's your solicit. Santa Claus is coming to town. The four-part crossover event of a generation begins when a not-so-jolly Saint Nick hits Gotham City to investigate a brutal crime in the days leading up to Christmas. What manner of man or beast could have committed such atrocities? With the help of his former student, Batman, Santa will team up with the heroes of the DC Universe to right this wrong, or the world wakes up to coal in their stockings. A brutal, two-fisted holiday tale of hope Wonder and monster hunting is the perfect treat to ring in the holidays. It's claws in canon. I'm not sure why we needed to add that last little yeah, bit, but yeah. whatever. When Norse vampires called the Draug attack, there's only one man to call Santa Claus. Jeff Parker returns to DC for this delightful adventure, revealing or confirming as the case may be a connection between St. Nick and the Dark Knight. Parker never reveals what exactly Santa taught Batman, but I think we all know now how he just seems to appear inside rooms, right? We get it. Wink, wink. Batman (laughs) puts his finger on the side of his nose and he's there. Most of the Bat family and even Zatanna are here to share in the fun, and we learn Santa's secret origin and how he connects to another infamous, less benevolent figure of Yule-time lore. I'm not all that familiar with the work of Italian artist Michelle Bandini, but his art here is fantastic. If for no other reason than his depiction of the Draug getting impaled on wooden stake-like reindeer horns. Nerds will be arguing about whether or not this story is really in canon for years to come, but none of that matters. Above all else, Batman Santa Claus number one is fun. If you're looking for something festive to go with your regular dose of superhero action, check this out. I'm giving this a buy it. Okay, Bandini was the artist on Dark Knights of Steel. That's why I know that name. Oh, yeah. Yes. I recognize the name, but I couldn't place yes. the art. He's great. Yeah. He's really good. This was I fun. I like him a lot. This was just fun and stupid, you know? Like, it's a good Batman story. 
Santa Claus is a badass. And if and if Batman is going to be trained by Santa Claus and that is in canon, I want it to be this Santa. Okay? This Santa's yeah. badass. It's very much like Grant Morrison's Klaus. I dug him. I'm giving this a buy it. It did the job. And you know that it and you know that it's got to be that it was his training had to be in infiltration and extraction or whatever you want to call it. Like getting in and out unseen, that sort of thing. Looks like the Sentry is back at Marvel, and he's got a posse. This is the Sentry, number one from Marvel, 40 pages, 499. It's written by Jason Liu, cover by Ben Harvey, art by Luigi Zagaria, colors by Arthur Hesley, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga, huh? This guy. Here's your solicit. Who will be the new Sentry? The Sentry is dead. But ordinary people all over the world are suddenly manifesting his powers and experiencing snippets of Bob Reynolds' memories. Will one of them survive long enough to emerge as the new century, or will their newfound power destroy them? When Misty Knight and Jessica Jones cross paths in search of answers, they open an investigation that will change everything you think you know about the century. Look, the century was a fun character idea back in the early 2000s as the forgotten creation of Jack Kirby. In reality, he was created by Paul Jenkins as a flawed superhero. Not Jack Kirby, a totally made up artist. Stan Lee and a totally made up oh, artist I thought it was named supposed to be a Rosen. For- I thought it was supposed to be a forgotten Jack Kirby thing. No, it was Stan Lee and an artist that they made up using- No kid. Okay, uh, I remember uh, that now. You're right. The names of two other Silver Age creators, they That's created right. a fake Silver Age artist. <laughs> That's right. In reality, in reality, the century was created by Paul Jenkins as a flawed Superman homage along with artist Jay Lee. I own a page of it. It's very sexy. After the first miniseries, I never cared much for the character, and when he was killed by the god of the symbiotes during the King of Black crossover, I didn't feel much. I said good. So, I didn't expect much from this new century title, but like Joe and I always say, all you need is the right creative team and any character can shine. In this case... Pitiful human lizard writer Jason Liu has a wholly new and fresh take for the century that sees his powers of a thousand exploding suns distributed to several young people, including an extremely believable woman with cerebral palsy and a mutant with big feet powers. Yeah. (laughs) Liu also gets to play with Jessica Jones and Misty Knight as they investigate the reappearance of the century's powers. And it makes for a great setup with Excellent art from relative newcomer Zagaria. I can't say I know that name from anything else. And Marvel, you might have the best idea they've had for the century since that first miniseries. I'm actually interested in this. I expected nothing. I'm giving this a buy it. And hats off, Jason Liu, friend of the show. Good for you, buddy. Getting a shot at the big time. Love it. Yeah, Jason's been doing like backups here and there at Marvel for a while now. I'm glad to see yeah. his name on a, a kind of a larger solo project. Uh, I thought this was fun. I, I, I like the hook a lot. It's very reminiscent. Um, do you remember? I know that you remember, but when Scarlet Witch no more mutant mutant all of the mutants on Earth or, you know, 98 percent of them. That power had to go somewhere. Yeah, I suppose. And yeah. And so it kind of like coalesced and went into the body of one of Earth's few remaining mutants. This just this random dude in Alaska. Yeah, I remember that. 
And so it's kind of like that, except split between multiple people, which I think is kind of cool. Well, but there's also like his memories too. So something else is going on. They're getting flashes of of his memory, right? Yeah. So I hope they're not bringing him back. (laughs) Well, we'll see. I don't want that. We'll see. But for, as far as this issue goes, I liked it a lot. I like the cast. I like that they're not all necessarily good people, which of course they wouldn't be. And uh, I think it's, yeah, this is going to be a fun time. I'm giving this a bite as well. I think it's interesting. I'm going to call my shot and I'll, and I'll even nerd bet here. The, whoever this group ends up, they Shazam into one person and it is the century. Several men, like all their voices are in the same head, one body, the century Voltron type thing. All right. I'll nerd bet that. And I will say that uh, when all is said and done, there will be one century. It will be a new century and it will be the girl with cerebral palsy. Okay. I'll take that action. I like it. Yeah. But it's been a while since we've had a good, like an actual nerd bet. I I love it. Shazam! This week's award for weirdest title goes to Our Bones Dust, number one. Like they forgot a definitive article or something, right? Like (laughs) our bones are (laughs) dust. (laughs) These are our dusty bones. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Dusty bones and skeletons, number one. Uh, This is written by and drawn by Ben Stenbeck with colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Russ Wooten. It's 32 pages for $3.99. And here's your solicit. Miniseries premiere. Thanks, Image. A feral child, equal parts predator and prey, navigates a nightmare landscape of brutality and blood, inhabited by scattered cannibal tribes. An interesting place to poke around for a curious artificial intelligence. A four-issue miniseries by longtime Mike Mignola collaborator Ben Stenbeck. You know him and you love him from the pages of books like Baltimore, Frankenstein Underground, and Kushi the Deathless. He's real good. <laughs> like this yeah, real good. a lot. So what if the earth of the Mad Max future, way, way in advance of even the Mad Max future, were being studied and cataloged by visiting alien scientists as though it were a giant wildlife preserve? That's more or less the elevator pitch for Ben Stenbeck's first solo project as artist and writer, and he nails it. Addis, our alien protagonist, is truly alien, at least physically, but his unhealthy obsession with a newly discovered human child threatens to lead them both down a dangerous path. Like the majority of the books in the Mignolaverse where Stenbeck made his name, there's a brevity to the dialogue in this issue. His script paints a picture of this world without over-explaining it. The art is absolutely incredible. And Dave Stewart's palette gets a workout, bringing color to bone-littered arid wastelands instead of looming gothic landscapes. Our Bones Dust number 1 hooked me right out of the gate, and I'll be following Stenbeck's solo projects very closely in the future. This gets a huge buy-it. I loved it. Yeah, Stenbeck's great. Just an, a rad artist. I love the designs of the alien uh, Russ Wooten did some really cool lettering stuff with yeah. the, I, I don't know if it's like a robot or like an AI that the alien is speaking to and like, well, it's like a, over a radio or something. Yeah. So it sounds, something along it, those it's lines. Like, you know, radio. yeah. And it's the, the word bubbles are really cool looking, but this whole book is just slick. It's great. It's weird as hell. I got some very like Brandon Graham 
kind yes. of highbrows, yeah. odd sci-fi vibes from it. But I dug the hell out of this. Stenbeck, man, that dude draws gore really well. Love it. I'm <laughs> giving some yes. buy it. This is great. I promise we are done talking about nipples, boobs, and wieners, and we're going to get into the kitty section of the podcast with Orcs, the gift, number one of three. This is from Boom Studios. It's 48 pages for $5.99. It's created by Christine Larson. She did it all. Here's your solicit. You haven't mentioned a boob, a dick, or a butt in like two reviews, you pervert. <laughs> you just mentioned them again, and I promised them we were done with that. Thanks a lot, Joe. Oh, great. I really... Iron fisted it right in there. <laughs> you can't help yourself, can you? <laughs> Here's your solicit. An alliance between orcs, crows, and elves is the last thing anyone would expect. Times have changed since the defeat of the wizard. The adventuring party grows larger as two of the crows join the gang of miscreant orcs, but the fun can only last so long as the wolf king holds a deep grudge against the orcs, threatening a second war of the beasts. Will this unlikely alliance last? Spoilers, doesn't look like it. This is the third series of Larson's Orcs, but thanks to a wonderfully illustrated opening page that will bring you up to speed if you're a new reader or perhaps a podcaster that reads so much that new stuff all blurs together, anyone will be okay. able to jump on board here. Or you read the first issue of a lot of different books and never the second, <laughs> exactly. third, or fourth. Larson has created a massive fantasy world for her bumbling group of orcs with just incredible art and even some heartwarming lessons that make this all-ages fantasy read perfect for kids just getting into the genre or old guys that have been playing D&D for years. Orcs plays on some clever tropes like the differences between elf and orc society while also showing that like different cultures often share similar values that can bring them together. Larson's cartooning is just simply a joy <laughs> and she gets to play with some wild psychedelic panels in this issue that had me laughing out loud. Orcs is just a perfect book to read with your little fantasy nerd or you know what? Take a break from the usual hyper serious comic crap in your pile. Relax and just have a good laugh. I'm giving this a buy it. I have read all the orc stuff that she put out. I read that first issue going, you know, it's good to talk about kids' books on this on the show every once in a while, even though the judge says I have to stay away from them, right? We want to bring people into the fold. And I ended up loving it and reading all of what she's put out. I'm going to read the rest of this too. I love orcs. It's a great book. You know, I don't even know if it's fair to classify it as a kid's book so much as a truly all ages. Yeah, I mean, it's all ages. When I experience. say kaboom, that is their younger readers, yeah. you know. And, uh, but I agree with you. I, you know, I never read past the first one, but I loved that first one. Oh, it's great. And they're and beautiful. Yes. The artwork is, it's very, uh, I don't mean it, I don't mean to say that it's, you know, like copying it, but it's kind of in the vein of, you know, a Steven universe adventure timey kind of like big eyes, round features it kind of. Looks like an animated kid's you know, book. Rebecca yeah. Sugar style yeah. artwork. And um, it's just tremendously well done. Like when the orc, when the wolf king, uh, like there's a scene, like spoiler, slight spoiler. There, There's a meeting between the wolves and the orcs and the wolf king drops his glamour. And becomes like the wolf, and you're like I was taken aback. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa, really cool!" 
Yeah, it's really gorgeous. It's very, very funny. It's even kind of touching. This is a huge buy it. I, I, I really like this book a lot. Oh! Matt Bomb for what may be the tenth and hopefully final time. It's got to be volume ten, right? Has to be at this let's, point. Let's review Thunderbolts number one from Marvel Comics. Calling my shot, Thunderbolts volume ten. I, I I'm I'm kind of exaggerating with with the tenth volume, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's up there. This is written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. With art by Geraldo Borges, colors by Arthur Hesley, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, cover by Terry Dodson. Woof, that cover. We're going to talk about that, though. Yeah. It's 40 pages for $4.99. Here is your Such solicit. Such a talented guy. I don't get it. <laughs> I, we'll get saved. We'll I know. Get there. Okay, okay. A revolution is coming. Bucky Barnes, the revolution, just inherited a mountain of covert intel, and he has one objective, justice, like lightning. That phrase, by the way, does not make any sense. No. Is that like from a poem or something? I, I it, don't. Like, they've been using it since Thunderbolts Volume 1. It's just something he's going after. said, right? It's just like something he said. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. He's going after the establishment. The people no one else is willing or able to take down, and he'll do whatever it takes to win. Teaming up with the mysterious Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, Bucky assembles a team of Black Ops heavy hitters to pursue high-profile targets like the Red Skull, the Kingpin, and even Doctor Doom himself. No one is safe. From the Thunderbolts, Kelly and Lansing clearly had more story to tell than their recent brief run on Captain America Sentinel of Liberty allowed them to tell. Luckily, Marvel has an IP ripe for synergizing with its future MCU counterpart. It's hard not to be at least a little cynical when the creative team trots out characters that clearly are only there because of their presence in said movie. And also, there's literally zero reason why this group is called the Thunderbolts, but the writers are able to make a decent case for why Bucky has decided to put this particular team together. And if this is going to be a secret defenders or secret Avengers style squad of rotating operatives, then eh, no harm, no foul. None of that is to say that I disliked what I read in Thunderbolts number one. It's quite the contrary. I think that Bucky choosing to use the vast resources he gained from the outer circle to hunt down the worst of the worst is a really compelling hook for an ensemble series, and I'm eager to see where Kelly and Lansing take it from here, especially after a couple of very dramatic developments for Contessa Val and the Red Skull. That Contessa Val thing, nobody saw coming, not even the other characters in the book. I don't know where that's going. Plus, the more I get of Sharon Carter as the new Destroyer, the better. The art by Geraldo Borges is a little dicey here and there, but it's pretty well done for the most part, and it fits the tone of the story well. This is kind of what we were talking about when we said, hey, if you're going to put out a book like mm, Spider-Man Gang War, get a guy like this to draw your gang war, sure. not a guy that's sure. super cartoony like Joey Vasquez. Don't judge Thunderbolts number one by it. It's horrendous Terry Dodson cover. <sighs> and don't worry if you skip the last run of Captain America. Kelly, Lansing, and Borges deliver a fun first issue featuring a self-contained adventure. 
that sets the stage for some interesting spy shenanigans to come. I'm giving this a buy it. That cover is terrible. It's so bad. What and Terry happened? Dotson is so good. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Is he though? Is he yes. still? Look, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why it looks like this, but Terry Dodson is a very talented artist. I, maybe he's trying something new. Maybe his wife's now working with him on this one. I don't know. Okay, so Thunderbolts. We just read a Luke Cage one shot about the gang yep. war where he directly name drops the New York Thunderbolts that are still running around doing the Thunderbolt job, right? There is going to be. Mm, I don't know if that's exactly accurate. Yeah, he says, oh, well, I'll call the Thunderbolts then or whatever to deal with it. Like, says those words in the comic book. I don't Freak, know. If, don't uh, don't worry about that. Uh, don't pay pay no attention to the mayor behind the curtain. Yeah, and like, and look, I, there might even be a Thunderbolts tie in a gang war. I don't know. <laughs> but It doesn't matter. It really ultimately does not matter for the purposes this of this story. felt a little too, not rushed, but maybe a little forced. Like, Thunder, here's your Thunderbolts book. Oh, by the way, there's a Thunderbolts movie that's coming out maybe in, I don't know, yeah. 2029. Right. But, and like, if you've seen the, if, you, if you've seen the promo art, if you, or if you've paid attention to the MCU, you can predict the, the characters that are going to be in this comic. Right. And you don't and need, it, to, my point is you don't need to call it Thunderbolts. This could be a Winter yeah. Soldier thing, you know, or like whatever they were calling him in the end. Yeah. You know, like it's Bucky's could story. Call it the Howling Commandos. Yes. This is Bucky's story. And it can lead yeah. to another Thunderbolts team. That's fine. I'm okay with that. And that's a minor, that's a minor gripe. The story is fine. It moves a little quick. It did drop some pretty big things on you. I I think Sharon Carter's the destroyer is more interesting than Sharon Carter just running around in a white suit. You know, she was just like, I'm I'm a shield agent, but I've got a white leotard. You know, okay. <laughs> agent 13, whatever, you know, fine. Yeah. And so I don't mind that at all. I like that we are addressing some of the bigger cap villains and stuff like that. It feels a little weird without Steve there. Right? I, mean, I didn't think so. These are Steve's big bads though, you know? Well, but I think the whole point is that they're doing what Steve can't or won't. I suppose. I suppose. I just don't want Thunderbolts to turn into another X-Force. And the Red Skull is one of Bucky's villains too. That is true. I just don't want Thunderbolts to turn into another X-Force. I don't need another team of murderers doing the job that the heroes get there. They show up with the murder. I mean, yeah, they, I, mean I they, get it. But they like don't operate guys, in black and white. These guys are soldiers, you know? though. I get This it. is a little different. I get it. I get it. Art was pretty good. I'm going to give it a strong skim it. I think it could build into Thank something I didn't good. think you were ever going to get to the point. I, I think it could build into something big. I just felt like this felt a little rushed and a little... Mar merchandising to me, you know? <laughs> they put the cart before the horse a yeah. little bit with the name. Like, already, why even put this out? You already today? have another like, team of goddamn Thunderbolts running around, you guys. Like, you already, <laughs> like, we already know the movie's not coming out right there's anytime no, soon. There's no rush. There is no rush. That's my point. Yeah, I, like, I agree with you, though. If this kind of led to the formation of a new Thunderbolts. Right. But yeah, the 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 name just like smacks of it doesn't it doesn't make any sense marketing, because Bucky right. has no can it, like like I didn't like it when they named the New York heroes at Hawkeye's leading the Thunderbolts that didn't make a lot of at sense least to me Hawkeye either. was the leader of the Thunderbolts but in the past. Hawkeye was the leader of the Thunder. There yeah. is a connection. There's no right. connection for no. these characters to the Thunderbolts outside of a movie that has not been made yet. Oh, now to be fair, there was that. 
the last Thunderbolts volume before there was a Thunderbolts miniseries prior to the New York City one that was drawn by that comicscape guy, and I didn't read it. And I think Bucky may have been in that. Thunderbolts, but volume I don't know, three? and I don't want to like. Oh, I didn't me, read it. Let me blow your mind here. This is Thunderbolts volume five. Somehow, impossibly, this is only Thunderbolts volume five. Maybe a, a lot. Several of the past iterations were picking up from old numbering then, I guess. Thunderbolts Volume 3 had the original team. Bucky was a member. You are correct. He's on the cover of this. It was like... Who's the name of that shithead artist? Oh, this this cover is terrible, too. Ooh, Jesus. John Malin. Jim Zub and John Malin. Yeah. Yeah, that guy sucks. Was he a comic skate shithead? You betcha. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Oh. That's why nobody talks about. That's why that book was forgotten. Good luck to you, sir. He outed himself as a. Have, have fun getting a, a job, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. That's okay. They're just raking in money from suckers on Indiegogo. What hey, do they care? Go for it. That's fine. Volume five. Good lord. It seems like this is volume thirteen. <laughs> it, I, when you said let me, I, when you said I'm going to blow your mind, I thought you were going to say volume eleven. Right. Volume five. Yeah. You can find links in our show notes for more details on all of these comics, but now it's time to pick the most sensuous risque story that we read and decide which one of them we put in the THN Permanent Collection Matt Bomb. Which comic book got you the most hot and bothered this week? Blood Rick. I was so horny after I read that book. Oh, my God. What comic God. book iron-fisted you the hardest? I, oh, my God. We're reading Blood Rick. I just had to, like, force my hand onto my cross and go, no, settle down. Okay, that's getting a little graphic. <laughs> a little too graphic. No, it's Blood Rick. That book just ruled, man. It was so metal and my I had the most upsetting boner. <laughs> and kick ass. I loved it. Blood Rick. Not close. Uh, yeah, I mean, Bloodwick was ver- Bloodwick was very, very good uh, for me. It had to be X Men Blue Origins, just because, like, it literally, it really did feel like the sudden correction of a decades-old injustice, and uh, I feel like it cast every character in the book in a completely new light. It was handled with such love and care. The art was great. It's X-Men Blue Origins. Fair. Really, you can't go wrong with either one of these. Also, Our Bones Dust. It, also great. Tremendous. Also great. Yeah. Off to a great start. A lot, of, a lot of very good potential uh, permanent picks for this week. But save your gang war money. Go buy something new. Huh? Only a couple go. of them get you mad, <laughs> get you mad horny. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everybody. I, really, I, I am so yeah, sorry. Jesus Christ. Now that we've settled down and our nipples aren't standing fully erect and our reviews are done, it's time to get our wits back about ourselves and retire to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we have got a pile of risque Christmas slash Hanukkah cards to send out, featuring us in our most festive two-headed leather daddy costume, spanking the mole men, Joe Patrick. Well, I grab the envelopes. Why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read picks for next week's new comics, Wednesday, December 13th. I promise you, we are out of the horny portion of the show, folks. Okay? <laughs> I mean, I tried to promise them that earlier, but <laughs> you wouldn't let it go. 
My pick for next week is Under Heist, number one from Boom Studios. It's by David and Maria Lapham. It's 32 pages for $4.99, and here's your solicit. After his gambling addiction brings David to the lowest point in his life and decimates his personal life, he'd do anything for one last chance at setting things right, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. He may just be in luck, if he can call it that. The grapevine yields illicit fruit as he learns of a heist. One involving a tunnel system that no one knows better than former New York City subway veteran David. In this brand new hard-boiled heist series with a supernatural horror twist, perfect for fans of Phantom Road and New Burn, the hit Stray Bullets creative team of David and Maria Lapham explore how seeking atonement can lead people to do desperate and dangerous things. They had me at Phantom Road. They had me at Newburn, and they had me at the Laphams. I love, oh, and heists. This solicit says everything right. I love heists. I love supernatural twists. I love all the creators involved and the inspiration. I can't wait for this. It sounds awesome. Yeah, the Laphams are really good at sticking in their wheelhouse and doing what they do best. And they're, they're great at this stuff. I love the Laphams as well. My pick for next week. Has to be Moon Knight, number 30. This is Legacy, number 230. That seems impossible, too. I can't believe there's been that many issues of Moon Knight. That's crazy. Oh, believe it, baby. Wow. This now, is from, this is like Moon Knight, volume 10. Yeah. This is from Marvel. It's 40 pages for $4.99. It's written by Jed McKay with art by Alessandro Capuccio. Here's your solicit. The terminal seconds of Moon Knight's end! The Battle of the Mount reaches an explosive conclusion and all that stands in the way of the Black Spectre's scheme of annihilation is Moon Knight. But can Moon Knight triumph against the odds arrayed against him or will the Mount stand as his tombstone? With all hope of resurrection gone, Moon Knight's life hangs on the line along with Manhattan. Spoiler, they're going to kill him. They've been telling us for six I mean, it months is now. the death of Moon Knight. Yes, Moon Knight is dead. Gone. Forget him. You're never going to see him again. The end. Moon Knight. Okay. We thought that with Batman R.I.P. too, but yeah. hey. There, I mean, look, we all know how this works. But <laughs> Jed McKay's Moon Knight run has been fantastic. And I say this with no hyperbole as a massive Moon Knight fan. I am not sure if this is the best Moon Knight output I've ever read. I'm a huge fan of the old stuff, of the more some of the more recent stuff, but McKay has just kind of put it all together in a really mm-hmm. nice bow, trading on a lot of the stuff that I love about like old school Chuck Dixon Moon Knight and shit, paired with stuff with like what Warren Ellis did with Moon Knight, and man, just brought it all together. Now he's going to kill him. Can't wait. I'm in. <laughs> I got to do it. I need to get caught up in time uh, for our next new comic review show because I do not want to miss out. Yeah, while traveling, I, I just binged like the last 10 issues and man, it's great. It's nice, just great. Nice. And this artist, uh, Capuccio, I man, the, he I is good. Him. And yeah, the, the style very, was a little, good. at first we were like, is this a little too manga? I don't know. And it, like- It grew on me instantly. Yeah, almost. it just, yeah, now I'm in. Love it. Yep, agreed. The THN trade for next week is Where the Body Was. It's a hardcover from Image Comics. It's written by Ed Brubaker with art by Sean Phillips. It's 144 pages for $27.99. Here's your solicit. Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, best-selling creators of Pulp, Reckless, and Criminal, are back with a new original graphic novel that readers will be obsessed with. 
a boarding house full of druggies, a neglected housewife, a young girl who thinks she's a superhero, a cop who wants to be left alone, and a private detective looking for a runaway girl. These stories collide one fateful summer in Where the Body Was, a tale of love and murder in the suburbs told from a dozen different points of view. All the neighbors on the block have an opinion about the murder and how it happened, but which of them is telling the truth? Love it. (laughs) Love it! Where the Body Was is a tour de force from Grandmasters Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Starting with a map of the crime scene, this murder mystery follows the ripples of this killing as they echo through decades of love and loss and passion and violence. Like a true crime podcast crossed with a long-lost diary, Where the Body Was is unlike anything Brubaker and Phillips have ever done, and a must-have for all of their avid fans. So Phillips and Brubaker, they are one of those rare creative teams where it doesn't matter. You don't need to read the solicit. It does not matter. The title doesn't matter. The format. In fact, guys, the solicit doesn't need to be three paragraphs long. I totally agree. You, you already had us at the names. You can literally say Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips have a new book, and I'll go, okay, here's my money. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, they're, they're on a very short list, and I think that would be a good question of the week, the short list of like creator teams that you don't care. You are in. Sight unseen. Yeah. Give me your project. I am down. And if you've not read their stuff and you're a fan of crime noir comics, there is no one that does it better. I'm saying it. There's no one that does it better than these two. Period. I don't really think that that's a controversial statement. Best in the goddamn business. Pick this up. If there isn't a chalk line drawn around it, we're assuming that your body's going to be visiting your local comic book store next week. If so, let us know what you were reading. You can do that over our Discord. And be sure to put these comics on your poll list if you want to read along with us. By the way, we usually review our picks on the new comic show. So tune in for that. It's almost time to send this episode to CGC, only to get another perfect 0.0 grade. But ain't easy. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it takes talent. But before we go, we wanted to... It's almost more rare than a 10. Yeah, the 0.0. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before we go, we wanted to give you all an early Hanukkah present, a sneak peek at our Patreon Extra that you get access to when you support THN for as little as one shekel a month. I don't know if the shekel is the same. I, I, you'll have to check the exchange rate, yeah. but, you know, Patreon it's close. Patreon figures that out. They do that. Okay. It's, it's Yeah, Patreon does all the math. Welcome, THN patrons. The comic pushers are here, and this time we have the holiday spirit in our hearts. Just in time for uh, a most excellent Xmas, we are talking about Santa in comics. Something It's a hard-hitting subject that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are concerned yes. about. St. Nicholas, yeah, you know. As you heard earlier in this episode, we discussed what happened when Batman was trained by Santa to break into buildings and houses. And uh, as of this recording... We have not discussed it yet, but through the magic of a podcast. Yeah, we're just assuming that that's what ha- that's what we read because we don't actually have our hands on the comic yet. But you, you will you will know exactly how we feel about Batman being trained by Santa now. Yep.
Much like Santa Claus, we are bending the laws of time and space to record this segment. It's true. It's true. Now, we had posed the question last week. Was Batman actually trained by Santa? Was there something in comics history where that popped up? Well, it seems like the answer is no. This is a new thing for this new book. It's a new idea being floated in this comic. But with that said, Santa has made a ton of appearances in your favorite superhero books. Now, we're just going to talk about the big two for a minute because that's where the bulk of these appearances took place. And we're trying to establish who is Santa in each realm. Right. I'll cover Marvel. Joe, I'm going to let you cover DC a little bit because you're a major DC nerd. But in the Marvel universe, I did not know this. But according to Odin, he is the inspiration for Santa Claus in the Marvel 616 universe. Because think about it. He showed up. He was wearing red and white. He was in a chariot pulled by two flying goats. And, uh, you know, the good people of Norway were like, what the frig is that? And uh, are you kidding me? That's uh, the guy in the sleigh with the two rams? Yeah. Santa Claus. And that's... <laughs> but he doesn't fly a sleigh with two rams. Now, in Norse mythology, maybe he does. I don't know. Look, there's all kinds of different Santa rules out there. So... I mean, I'll buy that. But yeah. also, Odin is known as a known boaster. Yeah, he's so. a shit talker. We don't know. There's no real uh, Just a, 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 a real quick kind of a note about what you said earlier about how Santa has made a ton of appearances. If you look up the character in on ComicVine.com, mm-hmm. now this is a list of comic appearances throughout publishing, not just Marvel and DC, but right. still. Santa Claus has appeared in 1,747 comic books. Whew. <laughs> and so we're talking like Disney comics, yeah, Image yeah, yeah. Comics, Marvel, DC, Archie. But uh, Marvel and DC, there are dozens. Dozens. We're going to touch on the two. just a few. Some, some history of Santa in the Marvel Universe, if you didn't know. Now, back in Marvel Age, number 109, this is in 1991, we learned that during World War II, Hitler actually captured Santa and the Howling Commandos were set on a top-secret mission to save him. Of course, they did. They're good boys. Kind of flies in the face of what uh, will be revealed in uh, one of my picks for this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, come on. This is World War II history, Joe. Later on in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Volume 1, Number 10, we saw Santa save actively take a role in saving New York City from the hate monger showed up, talked him down more or less. Makes sense. Made the hate monger feel like shit. You know, Nick Fury, of course, yeah, to go, no, that, that makes sense. Nick was going to kill him, shoot him in the face or something. Santa went, let me handle this. Nick <laughs> took care of that in the Marvel holiday spectacular, 2009, Santa found out that his reindeer were scrolls and he enlisted the help oh, of shit. the Illuminati at the time. But the Illuminati in an, a, in an attempt to help him deliver all the gifts were like, this is Santa Claus. Let's just give him the uh, Infinity Gauntlet, right? He's a good guy. It'll be fine. Santa instantly went bad. <laughs> instantly I went don't bad. like this. I don't like this one <laughs> he bit. Instantly went bad. There was a major battle, and Namor defeated him by hitting him with a giant snowball, reminding this him is some Bendis of shit, who isn't he it? was. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't think Bendis actually wrote Santa Claus versus the Illuminati by Brian Reed. It was definitely during, yeah, that time. And this was during the invasion, so they kind of fit that in there. Santa was having trouble, too. We all were. 14 different stories in that comic. Holy smokes. Yeah, man. That's why we're not reading the whole damn thing. Yeah. And then more recently, 
In the pages of Captain Marvel, Volume 8, Number 11, Santa, while disguised as a homeless person, got kidnapped by Project Pegasus. They were scooping up homeless people off the streets for testing purposes. Yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. Right. Excelsior! That's it, kids, for THN 724. If our new comic reviews make you feel a little randy, check out our YouTube channel, where you can stare at a logo for an hour, and you can subscribe to each show separately. We got a back issue show. Hey, I I spend a lot of time on those banners, It's true, and you do a good job. I dig it. Or you can listen to his podcast on YouTube Music. Next week, the back issue show returns. The Cosmic Longbox is once again feeling festive so we're reading holiday themed comics if you need more THN in the meantime join us for the THN gang bang on Saturday gang hang join us for the THN gang hang Saturdays at 11 o'clock central check out our discord for details there will be no weird sex there I promise it's a family friendly environment Joe tell them what else we can do there You can get in on the action before we even air the show and peer into the twisted psyche of Matt Bomb with our episode discussion thread. Debate the merits of the MCU vis-a-vis how it relates to the Home Alone extended universe. Get a crash course on the new Ultimate Comics timeline or debate the best place to find comic book values in the digital age. Spoiler alert, there isn't one. Nope. (laughs) Or maybe you just want to answer the question of the week. This week's question is courtesy of Frank Cirillo via the Discord. If money was no object, what one comic would you purchase and why? Now, this needs to be something that you would buy for reasons other than investment or speculation. So, keep your get-rich-quick schemes out of here. We want to know what comic you would buy that means something to you if money were no object. Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. And sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord. And once you're allowed in, no jerks allowed. That's right, jerks. You can post about any of our segments there or send an MP3 submission for the comic pushers for Ask a Nerd or whatever to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. And we'll put you on the show. You'll have to jerk off somewhere else, jerks. If you're new to oh, this show... <laughs> I thought I was out. If you're new to this show and you're alarmed at how horny you are, I assume it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosities of our donors like patron Joe Reynolds, who I will have you... He's an upstanding citizen that doesn't get down on any of this perverted crap and is probably taking back his Patreon donations right now. On the Discord, he refers to himself as the other, other Joe. <laughs> the which other, I- other Joe. <laughs> <laughs> If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Todd Turner and his daughter, a.k.a. Sis and Big Pops. The duo started a podcast to keep in touch during the pandemic, and in each episode, they discuss their favorite aspects of nerd culture with a family-friendly twist, unlike this podcast. Unlike this show. (laughs) Yeah. Todd mentioned the show in our Hype Yourself channel recently, and the duo have made it past the 75-episode mark. Oh, damn. That is an achievement. Word to you, sis and big pops. Todd, you got hyped. See how the Discord works. People. It works. The magic. The magic works. Look at this. Until next time, true believers, 
Remember to pre-order your comics or a retailer might just point out the weird bulge in your pants to all the other nerds there. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. I'm really very sorry. <laughs> <laughs>